You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Scholl. I am going to present a lecture which is called Where and What is Catholicism? It was a lecture that I gave in Maryland a number of years ago, but it's one that I think is interesting to do again. The lecture begins with two citations. Listen to them carefully. The first one is from Father Ernst Fortin, a professor at Boston College at the time. It reads, It is no accident that Christianity eventually made its bed in the Roman Empire and has been, so to speak, wedded to it ever since. To this day, the geographical parameters coincide, by and large, with those of Rome, of the Rome of old, its colonies, and the colonies of its colonies, with the exception of Russia. Nowhere else, it seems, has Christianity been able to strike deep roots or make substantial inroads among the native populations. The end of the quote. The second citation is from the General Catechism of the Catholic Church. Quote, When his hour comes, Christ lives out the unique event of history which does not pass away. Jesus dies, is buried, rises from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of the Father once and for all. His Paschal mystery is a real event that occurred in our history, but it is unique. All other historical events happen once, and then they pass away, swallowed up by the past. The Paschal mystery of Christ, by contrast, cannot remain only in the past because by his death he has destroyed death and all that Christ is, all that he did and suffered for all men, participates in the divine eternity and so transcends all times while being made present in them and all of them. The events of the cross and the resurrection abide and draw everything towards life. The end of the quote. We might look at the world in terms of continental or political blocks. Roughly, we have a largely secularized Europe with declining populations being replaced largely by Muslim immigrants. We have North America. This continent is largely Christian, though the culture is different, with the Latin culture being the more vigorous in terms of population increase. South America is a cultural offshoot of Spain and Portugal, with a mixture of native populations plus later immigrants from Europe, largely Spanish, German, and Italian. Australia is sparsely populated 
an offshoot of England. Russia is almost a continent to itself. It is Orthodox Christian, but with a doleful heritage of its communist past. Then there is China, with another communist veneer over an ancient ethos, rapidly growing in power and aggressiveness. Japan is modern in everything, along with South Korea. Both are powerful economies, with some small percentage of Christians. The Philippine Republic, with its Spanish and American heritage, is the only Asian country to be largely Catholic. The Witu has a Muslim problem in its south. <clears throat> Next is India, with its vast mixture of Hindu and Muslim populations. Africa is its own world, Muslim in the north, many Christians, many still in tribal status in the south. <clears throat> Finally, we have the Muslim world itself stretched from the Atlantic in Morocco to the Pacific in Indonesia. In the 7th and 8th centuries, Islam, largely through military means, expanded much more rapidly once it began than did Christianity in its early centuries. Islam conquered significant portions of formerly Christian lands, including the Holy Land itself, with the old Eastern Byzantine Empire. The Crusades were belated, mostly unsuccessful efforts to stem this tide. The main reason Europe is not Muslim today is because of the two battles that the Europeans won, one in France in the 8th century and one in Vienna in the 17th. Thus far, practically no inroads have been made in changing the principles of Muslim culture or its area of control. Indeed, Islam is in many ways suddenly the most expansive and dynamic religion and culture in the world today. We can thus say, roughly, that in a world population of something like seven plus billion inhabitants, one-fifth are Christian, one-fifth are Chinese, one-fifth are Muslim, one-fifth Hindu, and a final fifth everything else. If we look at these worlds, we see that Catholicism experiences some increase in the non-Muslim parts of Africa, though many of the African wars are caused by Muslim expansion at the expense of the Christians. Christians elsewhere have pretty much left most of the other Muslim areas where they could, where, when they could, they have left their area of uh, control. The recent popes have urged these ancient Catholic communities to remain in the Near East, but one can hardly blame uh, the majority from leaving their essentially second-class citizenship in this area. Much of Near Eastern immigrants into Europe, Canada, and uh, the States is Christian. In India and China, various ideological and political obstacles exist to any serious Catholic presence. 
in India, a small Catholic population from earlier uh, colonial control, uh, even apostolic times, uh, exists there for the most part, though it is not allowed to expand. The Indian policy is pretty much dedicated to keeping the status quo. Though there may be many reason, there may be many underground Christians, China is simply hostile in spite of the efforts of recent popes to provide some openings uh, to the Christians. Catholic bishops and other Catholics remain in jail in China. The government controls Catholicism through a national church. Catholicism is experiencing a definite decline in Europe. The secular trends seek to eliminate any religious history or influence, uh, no matter how ancient. Scandinavia has become the model of a new secular man. The landscape of Europe reveals many Christian churches closed, many mosques being, being built. In the Latin American world, once completely Catholic, many inroads have been made by various Protestant sects, especially the Pentecostal-type ones. In short, the church is still a formidable organization in terms of numbers and presence, even in a worldwide sense. Still, the observation of Ernst Fortin is largely true. Little expansion beyond the old Roman Empire, Empire limits and its various extensions from colonial times has taken place. Writers like Philip Jenkins give us some hope that the picture of the church in Asia and Africa is rather more positive. Certainly, if we look at the present composition of the College of Cardinals, the presence of Asian, African, and Latin American members is very pronounced. A non-European pope, though one with an Italian roots, has in fact been elected in Pope Francis. Looking at this scene as objectively as possible, not forgetting the further challenges that come to Christianity from an aggressive science, especially biological science, that more and more wants to experiment and change what we are, even in our physical and psychological makeup, we cannot be overly optimistic. We are implicitly used to a philosophy of progress that tells us, however dubiously, that as time goes on, things will get better and better. This proclamation is not the view of Scripture, which insists that things can and will get worse. Christians will suffer persecution to the end of time. We want to forget, as Robert Royal shows in his book, Catholic Martyrs of the 20th Century, that the century that had the most number of martyrs for the faith was not the first century after Christ 
but the last, the 20th century. I would add that a certain hard-headed realism about where we are, about those who profess to be our enemies, about our abilities, warns us to be sober in our times. But we also maintain that God is present in the worst of times as well as the best. What are called the best of times, that is, prosperity, abundance, plenty, plenty, something we claim a right to possess, uh, is often, from a moral viewpoint, the most dangerous of times. What are we to make of this situation? Modern popes still continue to return to that central concept of Christianity best seen at the end of gospel of the Gospel of Matthew. Its members are to go forth and teach all nations. This admonition implies that all nations actually need to know what Christ came to teach us. Nor do they already have everything, do they already have everything. Otherwise, it would make no sense to teach anything that they do not already know. Yet, if there is anything striking about the church after Vatican II, it is its decrease in missionary vigor and uh, effort. Something Paul VI tried to address in his Evangelium Annunciantis. And John Paul II also in his encyclical Redemptoris Missio. Francis in his Evangelii Gaudium has much to say on being missionaries. But this effort <clears throat> to teach is not as easy as it is sounds. Modern ideas of nationhood, culture, and religious and religion conspire to look upon any missionary effort, except perhaps in scattered individual cases, or when strictly humanitarian in scope, as colonialist, or biased, or intolerant, or ignorant. What is called proselytizing is strictly frowned upon, even by the church itself. We do not like others to be constantly interrupting us to try to convert us to their views. We do not like it when, as not a few religions do, they try to convert us. But what, if anything, does Christianity have that these myriads of people need? What is the urgency? What is wrong with letting the various nations, religions, and ideologies remain as they are? Indeed, not a few theologians, evidently frustrated by the inability of Christianity to make any significant inroads over the centuries of missionary effort, have developed ingenious theories whereby people, either individually or collectively, can be, quote, saved, unquote, without formally becoming Christian. If people seek God in their own way, 
or if they are sincere believers in some philosophy or faith, let them be. God will provide. We need not disturb them with our rather complex religion. Indeed, it has been standard Catholic teaching, repeated in Vatican II, that for those who are invincibly ignorant of the means of salvation, that God would provide a way, even if we do not know what it is. Some think the logic of this view is simply to let God take care of things. We do not really have to do anything. Relatively few people in the world believe the substance of what the New Testament teaches. For centuries, it has been standard teaching that in the case of death, all one minimally had to believe was what it says in Hebrews 11 about believing in God's existence and that he rewards the good and punishes evil. Some would leave it at that. The only rub in this approach, which seeks to expand exceptional case argument into the norm, is that mission work seems to be the essence of the faith. Christian faith and documents strongly insist that people, all people, in all times, need to hear, accept, and practice what the gospel teaches. Any fair reading of the Bible indicates that Christ was quite clear that there were things everyone, without exception, needed to do and hold to be saved. This need was why the apostles and the church were instructed to carry this good news to the whole world. Another implication was that however sincerely held, wrong teaching or immoral practice had devastating consequences on human lives. One does not refrain from telling a murderer or an adulterer that he is wrong simply because of a popular philosophical view that everyone is free to decide for himself what is good and what is evil. The classic temptation of Adam and Eve was to make this precise claim. It is ourselves, not God, who decides what is the distinction between good and evil. We are confronted today with what might be called the normative multicultural view of the world, something often imposed on us by law, whether we recognize it or not. All cultures, nations, and religions, it is presumed, are equal. Who is authorized to say otherwise? To suggest that something is lacking in Chinese or Hindu culture or religion is arrogance. Neither the Chinese nor the Hindu will allow such talk in his jurisdiction, a jurisdiction now bearing all the authority and power of the modern state apparatus. What we need, rather, it is said, is a sort of world parliament of religions, 
under the auspices, say, of the United Nations or UNESCO in some elegant place like Paris. Religions and ethical societies would all be represented in a common body. They would be forbidden by coercion, if necessary, to impose their views on anyone else. Even to mention that anything except certain defined prejudices is wrong is hate language. We are more and more deprived even of the language in which to speak of what Scripture calls evil. Our religions were all to spend their time finding out how much they all agreed with each other. The world would be policed by religious thought police who would assure that no one disturbed anyone else's conscience by suggesting that some religion was better than another. Religion, tamed of its anathemas, would be a kind of therapy to calm the people. No full truth or claim to truth could be found in any religion. There would be endless religious discussions, dialogues, and conventions. All rights would be ecumenical. All are welcome at all times. Religion would no longer have anything to do with the public order. Its expression would be strictly private as opposed to public. We have freedom of worship, not freedom of religion. Things like education, health care, family care, care of the poor, jobs, vocations, would all become public concerns defined by law and controlled by the state. Everyone would have a right to them. One could not really do anything for anyone since whatever one did for someone, that person would already have a previous right to receive it. Charity becomes justice. National boundaries would have to disappear or become simply administrative lines, not, as they are now, divisions that acknowledge that there are different ways of, of life. What is a right in one place is a right in another. All rights are projected on everyone. In the name of equality and justice, everything would tend to be the same. Education, wealth, housing, welfare. Freedom would mean having a right to these things. Crime would be having more of anything than anyone else. This way of life is what man and the world are said to be all about. Life and death themselves are now defined by the state. Euthanasia and abortion are rights, any opposition to which the state will not tolerate. All of this legislation is provided in the name of human autonomy. Religion is in the service of this world, of this world, and these rights which alone define our dignity.
Again, what are we to make of this? Recently, I had an email from a friend of mine who was talking uh, of the great falling away of the church that whether we like it or admit it or not, occurred in the years after Vatican II. He was commenting on a thesis of a Canadian scholar who argued that the nature and presence of evil in the world and the supernatural and sacramental means to confront it had been minimized in the church itself. My friend remarked that today many people don't believe these things anymore. They don't believe in creation, God's existence, redemption, the creed, Eucharistic sacrifice, real presence, or consecrated priesthood. These are, however, the classic terms in which Christian understanding of themselves and the world was presented. They still are. The central teachings of Christianity revolve around the creation, the fall, and the redemption. These doctrines explain the nature of the world, what is wrong in the world and what is present in the world, placed there by God's revelation itself to confront what is wrong. What I want to say here initially is that there is a perfectly solid and intelligible case measured against the best evidence to the contrary that each of these Christian understandings of God, man, and the cosmos is still the best understanding, even in terms of reason. Few ever see the case for Catholicism put clearly and coherently against all comers. The modern view of reality is based on an understanding of the world evaporated of meaning, of internal and external order. Into this world, we, as the only sources of meaning, project our own ideas on what we are and in what happiness consists. Yet, on its own grounds, the grounds of what is really the best destiny for men, Catholicism's understanding of reality is superior to any of the alternatives. This fact, I suspect, is one of the reasons that the Church, in its orthodox form, is often hated with an almost diabolical passion. The accurate description of what Catholicism is, as Chesterton said, is also a major problem from the other side. That is, on the Catholic side, the main reason why we are loath to hold it is that it is too good to be true. In the beginning, I cited two passages, one from Father Fortin, about where or of the geography of Christianity. The second was from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It was about the what of Catholicism, the where and the what. The two questions, 
the what and the where of Catholicisms are, in my mind, related. A colleague of mine at Georgetown, Father Roland Murphy, has recently published a very interesting book on the search for and identification of the famous Holy Grail in the work of a famous German poet, Wolfram von Eisenbach, in the famous Parsifal. After much sleuth and analysis, which took a considerable amount of theological perception, Murphy concluded that the Holy Grail, of which von Eisenbach wrote, is currently in a museum in Bamberg in Germany. And what was this grail? In other versions of Parsifal, it was usually considered to be the cup from which Christ at the Last Supper drank his blood. Actually, the grail is rather a portable altar stone, the kind used to say mass upon uh, on which we said mass were soldiers in the field. The altar stone is meant to depict the Holy Sepulchre where Christ was buried. We still retain the idea of altar stones in building our churches. There is an amazing amount of symbolism going back to the four rivers of paradise in this particular stone in Bamberg. The point of Murphy's argument was that we do not need actually to go to Jerusalem, however pious that might be, to find Christ. Christ is where the altar on which the holy sacrifice is said, that is where he is, wherever that might be. Since the resurrection, there is no place where this central act of our redemption may not take place. With such background, I want to speak of the passage in the Catechism, which is of great interest in the question that I am raising for you today. This issue is precisely where is Catholicism to be found? The import of what I am asking is the same whether we talk of Jerusalem in the time of Christ, of Bamberg in the time of Wolfram, or of any parish, any place in our own time. To understand what I say, I want to indicate briefly that we Catholics, officially, what we Catholics officially hold about the Mass. The Mass is not a friendly community meeting, however nice or boring community meetings may be. It is not a regular meal, even though it takes the form of a meal. I might say here that the best technical book that I know on the Mass is that of Monsignor Robert Sokolowski at Catholic University called Eucharistic Presence, though John Paul II's encyclical on the Eucharist is not to be missed. The Mass includes and must include in one action three things, word, sacrifice, and communion. The Mass is not something that a priest or bishop makes up out of his own head as he goes along. 
It is something to which he is obedient, for which he is ordained. The Mass is not a drama or play on the stage to be performed before us, in which the priest is the main actor, after which he bows and the congregation claps for him. Cardinal Ratzinger, in his great book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, pointed out that a real danger exists when the priest or the congregation think he is celebrating or acting. The members of the congregation, thus, are not to think that they should applaud his word or his performance. The priest is there strictly in persona Christi. His personality, whatever it is, has nothing to do with the reality of what is going on at Mass. A priest better be a humble man in the world when he says Mass, because what is going on is not of his own making. He is, in the most precise way possible, doing what the Church tells him to do. In a basic sense, in terms of its essence, no priest says a better Mass than another priest. All priests say the same Mass if they intend to do what the Church sets down and and if he follows its prescribed rubrics and words. This is objectively the Mass Christ said at the Last Supper, which was itself, as the words of the Mass themselves explicitly say, cast in terms of what would happen in the next days, his sacrificial death and resurrection. With these remarks, let us return to the passage in the Catechism. Basically, Catholicism is where the Mass is. Someplace in the world, every day, at every hour, from its rising to the sun's setting, as we read in the can- one of the canons, Mass is being said. The Mass is the instruction of God to us human beings about how properly to worship him. To worship means to acknowledge and praise God above all things and to hope that we, body and soul, as one person, as individuals who are members of his mystical body, will spend eternity in the Trinitarian presence of God. Our life on earth is a good and created thing. But this world is essentially a place given to us to decide what we will finally worship, when we worship God or ourselves. We make this choice in the course of our lives and deaths. All who die have made the basic choice one way or another. The first thing we are taught here is that the liturgy, the Mass, is the Paschal mystery. We look at the Mass backwards, as it were, from the point of view of the resurrection and not through the bloody action of the crucifixion itself, about which we 
remain vividly aware. The text specifically says that Christ makes this mystery present before us. As a friend of mine says in her autobiography, the Mass is something real outside of ourselves. We are informed and we can recall from Scripture that Jesus, in his life on earth, spoke of this mystery. He both taught with words and actions. This event of his death was unique. Its hour came after he was arrested and the agony in the garden. This event of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection is the unique event of history, and as such, it does not pass away. How so? There are four facts. Jesus dies, is buried, raises from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We repeat these words in the creeds, which is one of the reasons we are to say creeds in every Sunday Mass. We affirm them. There is evidence of the death, burial, and resurrection, and that evidence is, is affirmed by us. There is authority for the seated at the right hand of the Father. How many times does this event happen? The answer is direct once for all. Thus, the Paschal event is a real event that occurred in our history. Our history means human time, human space in the world. It is not a myth and not a nice story, not an imagination and not a wish. It is a fact, something that took place. Though many try to do so, we cannot in logic deny it without at the same time denying the very fact of reality itself. But this event, because of whom it happened to, that is, to the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity, is unique. All other historical events happened once and then they pass away. They are swallowed up in the past. Christ's death and resurrection, however, remains because he remains. God is present to all time. The Paschal mystery of Christ cannot remain only in the past. Why not? Because his death destroyed death. That is what both God's everlasting life and eternity mean. Time is not outside of eternity. Christ's death and resurrection are now present before the Father. Thus, all that Christ is, all that he did and suffered for all men, participates in the divine eternity, and so transcends all times while being made present in them all. Much is said here. When we are at Mass in a given place and time, no matter where it is or who 
uh, uh, validly says it, what happens is the same. Catholicism is where the Mass is said with the full consciousness that what happens is the making present of the one sacrifice of the cross and resurrection. A thousand priests do not say a thousand masses in a thousand different places and times. They all say the same mass, the only mass, the one that took place the night before he suffered in the upper room, but as the memorial of the sacrifice the next day of his blood for the redemption of our sins to bring us as he would go, as he would go to the Father. The paragraph concludes. The event of the cross and resurrection abides and draws everything towards life, towards the eternal life that we are promised in which the Son, through the Son, the, through the Son, through the Son whom He will send, through the Spirit whom He will send, returns to the Father. Through His cross and this alone, He draws all things to Himself. Thus, to the question, where is Catholicism? We can say that Catholicism is wherever the Mass is. The Mass is not just any prayer or any understanding of God, but a specific understanding of a specific event that happened once and for all. What is the Mass? The Mass is the action of the Last Supper, the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ to the Father carried out as one single redemptive action, one eternal now. It is always present to the Father. It explains what we are and why we exist. It is not just another way to worship God. It is the way to worship God after the manner in which we all are to worship Him. The Mass is the most awesome moment. We surround it with word, silence, and music. It remains, it explains what creation and the world and our lives are about. And it also, in the end, defines who we are. We know the innumerable, that innumerable many reject it. Others never heard of it or heard it properly explained, and still others do everything to prevent it from being said. To all of these we are, if they will, evidently sent to teach. The recent popes have insisted that the basic human freedom is the freedom of religion, the freedom to worship God as he has asked us to worship him. They are they do not want any religion not to be free. This freedom cannot be coerced. Once we are allowed to freely hear what the Mass is, we still must choose it. The Mass, if we faithfully attend it, learn it, worship it, worship at it, will draw us to what happens within its divine action. What does happen? Nothing less 
than the being made present in the now of eternity of the Lord's Supper with its anticipation of the reality of his cross and resurrection. We do not become brothers of one another and then go to Mass. We are brethren. We love one another because we first worship the same God in the way, the only way, that he taught us to worship him. We are to be present with our Amen, our affirmation, at the one sacrifice made present before us once and for all. The end of the lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.